Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider Podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. SPAC structures can provide unique opportunities to bring together many pieces to a new puzzle, which is very much the case with this week's deal. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlene Haddad and I speak with John Scheibley, Chairman and CEO of Quantum Fintech Acquisition Corporation, and Craig Reidenauer, Chief Business Development Officer at Atlas Clear. John and Craig explain how they have crafted a three-way merger to give Atlas Clear a unique set of competencies in the financial services space, combining trading, clearing, settling, and banking with financial products that are generally unavailable to its middle market clients. They discuss why this market is underserved and what barriers to entry they would be able to surmount with this combination. Take a listen. So this is a really unique SPAC transaction, and I want to get to each of its constituent parts in turn. But first, I'd just love to know more about the genesis for this business idea. You know, John, you started and sold Next Trade over the course of a decade. So, you know, what did you see looking at Atlas that you saw something like a core that could be built upon? It really is a continuation of the model that we built at Nextrade, which we did end up selling to Citibank. We've always focused on using technology to create efficiencies for our customers. In, in a highly regulated environment, you've got to have efficiencies that are technology, and you also have a full understanding of the regulatory structure. And so we have, for the last 25 years, been building financial services firms that are highly regulated, that use technology to create advantages for our customers. And that really is what this is encapsulating. It's a fintech company for a correspondent clearing firm and a Federal Reserve member bank. Great. And for Craig, I would love to know what your process was like with this too. You know, how many of the ideas did you have from your vantage point and how many stones did you have to turn over to sort of get some of these pieces together? Well, it has been a long process. John and I have been at this for some time, but at the core of what we've been trying to create was a basically a one-stop solution to really service that small institution market that's been orphaned by combining a correspondent clearing firm and a Fed member bank to be able to control the entire life cycle of a custody clearing settlement of a transaction and also banking that transaction. And so throughout the course of this process, we had a number of different targets identified and it ended up that the two that we're currently engaged with, with Wilson Davis and also Farmer State Bank just fit perfectly as far as culturally, also with their history, clean, profitable, and then layering in our technologies, we thought we really could create a a unique platform that could really capitalize on a portion of the market that's been orphaned. And so once this transaction closes, Atlas Clear aims to serve financial services firms on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of scale. So what makes a small to mid-sized market an attractive customer base? It really is, Craig likes to term orphan, and that really is what's happened to a number of small brokerage firms and family offices. It's difficult for them to get what would otherwise be a competitive relationship for these services because they don't have the scale. They often have kind of one-off issues that they got to have, they have to have addressed, and it's difficult for very large bureaucratic firms to invest the time and money to serve these customers. From our perspective, they are smaller but they also generally bring higher margins. And so it's a really good business for us to do. And it is the business that we've done since the beginning of Next Trade, where we've serviced and provided technologies to smaller firms that on their own really couldn't make the investments to offer a competitive solution. So this is just what we've been doing for a long time. We've been doing it well, and we're excited about the next version of it. And so with that in mind, why is it that larger institutions haven't put more effort into serving this market? It's a good question. It's it's something that we see both on the bank side and on the broker side. The regulatory environment, rightfully so, is very strict, but that strictness carries a lot of expenses and a lot of burden. And so if the customer 
as a whole doesn't offer enough money or offer enough potential future business, decisions are made at the business level where it's not worth the investment in these customers relative to what they get in return. Obviously, you get to a point where you get over that equilibrium, but for the large part of the small market, they don't get over that equilibrium. And in certain situations, customers end up actually doing what we call piggyback relationships, where they're unable to support the minimum costs for these kinds of services. And so they end up getting another intermediary that goes to the end inter intermediary. And every time you add a layer into a transaction cost or a banking cost, you add risk and you add expense. So it's a difficult market if you're a big firm often by not servicing them, you kind of end up getting their business anyway through these piggyback relationships. So the motivations aren't there to reach down and service this market the way it should be serviced. Got it. And then I'm interested to hear what your marketing approach will be towards this group of potential clients. If you could just dive a bit deeper into that. Sure. We do always try to lead with our technologies. Our technologies offer white label solutions where customers can come into us and have a product that's competitive with anything else out in the market. And we price that white label technology based on that customer's business, what we think they can bring to us as well. But in certain situations, we offer it as a loss leader to these enterprises so they can be competitive. From our perspective, we've made the investment in the technology and the scale. And so it, what we're really concerned about is getting the customer onto the platform in the first place. And when we're able to do that, it's very sticky, the relationship, because if you're a small introducing broker, and your customers come in and they deposit their assets with you as a custodian. I don't know if you've ever personally tried to transfer an account from, for example, from E-Trade to Schwab. It can be a massive burden. If you're a brokerage firm and you've got, say, only a thousand clients, it doesn't change the fact that each of those clients have to be transferred in the same kind of brutal process. And so for us, we're using our technologies to provide an advantage to these smaller customers. And the benefit to us, of course, is we get really sticky customers with higher margins. And, and so just getting into the nuts and bolts about, you know, into how this is all going to work, can you walk us through each of the puzzle pieces here? You know, what does Wilson and Davis and co bring to Atlas FinTech and how, how will the capabilities of Commercial Bank Corp of Wyoming add to the combination as well? So Wilson Davidson Company is a full correspondent clearing firm, and there just really aren't many independent correspondent clearing firms, which means they're a member of NSCC DTC. They can carry and custody a variety of products, and they can provide introducing brokers a complete solution. That's critical for the business model because our technologies are trading technologies, front-end technologies, risk management technologies, and Wilson Davis provides the security side solution for that business. The bank is an interesting add-on, and I do want to stress the transactions are pending regulatory approval. Right? It's not up to us to say that this is going to happen. FINRA has to bless the Wilson Davis transaction, and ultimately the Federal Reserve has to bless the acquisition of the bank. But assuming we get through those approval processes, we'll be able to marry the two companies in a way that creates a lot of efficiencies. Brokerage firms often have large cash balances, especially in qualified accounts. Those cash balances have to be swept or qualified accounts to FDIC institutions. If you're able to properly marry a bank and a corresponding clearing firm, you create a very significant deposit capture mechanism for the bank itself. And then of course, from the brokerage perspective, margin lending is a very good business. The more you can do margin lending because you've got liquid custody and collateral in your own possession, the better off your returns can be. The bank can help supplement the clearing firm and the margin lending and it creates between the two companies a solution for the holding of almost every form of asset. 
and also creates efficiencies in how we capture total net interest margin between the two firms. Also, it gives us control over the assets against which we're extending credit. And when you get into things like portfolio margin, it's easy to overlook the importance of control over the custody when you're used to dealing with really large firms and they never have fails. But at a smaller firm level, from the risk management perspective, it's better if one firm can control all of those assets from a collateralization perspective, because then you know you're not going to have fails. So Wilson Davis gives us all the power over the securities transactions that we want. The bank will give us the cash and cash settlement transactions that we want. Married together, they provide us a platform for risk management that we want. Having the technology necessary and having the regulatory experience necessary is a big lift, but this is what we've been doing for the last 25 years. And so we know how to articulate the marriage of tech, both fintech and reg tech to get it right. For those who are somewhat unfamiliar, what are the advantages to acquiring these competencies uh, through M&A rather than applying for licenses and building this out in like an organic or greenfield way? Nick, that's a, that's a great question. I want to thank you for the great question. <laughs> so we have built several companies from the ground up and it's an extraordinarily hard thing to do not just from the business perspective of actually getting the customers and getting to profitability, but integrating all of the technologies in a way that the customer doesn't see any interruption in the services that they want. Wilson Davis has been around for over 50 years. The bank that we're targeting to acquire and have under contract to acquire has been around for over 100 years. Both have really good existing tech stacks, but importantly, they've got existing staff. They've got existing people that understand how to run the business. They're both profitable. Right? And so the, the bottom hurdle of getting to a point where are you going to be able to build a business and get a critical mass to really grow is already covered for us. And because these companies are already operating, it's much easier for an experienced management team and an experienced board like we have to step into the platform and really help goose the engine by letting the companies grow in the way we believe we can help them grow. So for us, the buy versus build question is a no-brainer with these two companies that we spend a lot of time identifying, a lot of time cultivating the buy decision is absolutely the right decision. It'll get us to market much faster, which makes a huge difference in customer support and customer acquisition. And do you have a pipeline for further M&A after these transactions are complete, or will the platform be largely rounded out by then? We do, um, we do have a pipeline of identified targets that we're interested in acquiring. I can't go into specifics for them, but it is our intention to use our publicly traded currency to make acquisitions that are accretive to the platform and accretive not just from a profitability perspective, but from an asset capture perspective. Money is made by the clearing company by having more assets under control against which to lend, whether that's lending for actual margin loans or stock lending. The goal is to grow that asset base. And by finding the right acquisitions, we can do that much faster. And that will be our intention post spac and so among your competitors, none of them check all the boxes in terms of services that Atlas Clear plants offer. So of those competencies, which do you think is the hardest to integrate for incumbents? The hardest to integrate really is the cultural differential between the bank and the brokerage firm. They're very different animals in how they operate and how they think internally. They're obviously both highly regulated and they grow up under very strong regulation. And so they're always worried about that but the regulators are different, the standards are different. These two companies are, are small enough where we can come in and share our culture, which is knowing how to run brokerage firms and knowing how to run a bank and tying them together. It's a difficult process if you were trying to buy a big brokerage firm and merge it with a big bank, it can take forever. With these little companies, 
And our culture, we believe we can integrate them very quickly. And we think that's a significant advantage for us. And it's something we've done in the past. But so moving back to the, the deal a little bit, uh, you know, I just wanted to get a little bit more into your process also, John. You know, since IPOing in February 2021, you've seen the market change quite a bit and quantum fintech even had a different deal going at one point. So just how have the macro factors around uh, changed what you were looking for? Well, the SPAC market got really hard and the institutional support and pipe market got really hard and a lot of it dried up and difficult to get a transaction done. When we went public through our IPO, we didn't go public and try to take advantage of the SPAC craze. From the Atlas group of companies that we run, we had identified multiple targets that we wanted to acquire for the Atlas companies and COVID came along. And our companies have always been small relative to our competition. We don't have a blank checkbook where we can just throw money at acquisitions. Acquisitions that we were trying to identify had to make sense from a cash flow perspective. If it didn't make sense from a cash flow perspective, we couldn't afford to do it. And as COVID came along, we had several companies that we were interested in acquiring, but we couldn't forecast a way to buy them because I didn't know what COVID meant. Our board would meet and say, what's going to happen to trading revenues? I wouldn't have predicted the trading boom that followed COVID. You know, what's going to happen when airports shut down? It was a very difficult time to decide what to do. And we had identified already both of the targets. We had already had Wilson Davis under our horizon, and we had Farmer State Bank Corp, the holding company, which is Commercial Bank Corp of Wyoming, as a target that we were interested in acquiring back in 2020. These are companies we've known for a long time. So we decided to do this back because we felt that by the time we went public, perhaps we'd have more clarity on, on COVID, right? And then we'd have a better situation where we could acquire a company with more reliably predictable performance and reliably predictable results. We did the, the SPAC. We went public in 2009. I was surprised at the number of additional opportunities that came into us that were good companies that might make good targets for us. But the market did change and we had to go to a different acquisition opportunity. And we were actually looking at taking Atlas Clear to an entirely different SPAC and in discussions with other SPACs because it's such a good target. But the way the events unfolded, we were able to have quantum fintech acquisition take Atlas Clear out. And we think it's a fantastic trade. That All of that unfolded because the SPAC market went from super hot to super cold and a lot of trades broke. We've been able to navigate that and get to a really good business combination. And we're looking forward to hopefully de-SPACing very soon. Certainly for us, the SPAC path is the best path for putting Atlas Clear together because, you know, once again, we're coming into a company uh, with less capital than we'd like to have to be really competitive across the board for all potential customers. We also want to do acquisitions. And so from a small company perspective and having always run relatively small companies, we're always thinking about how do we make sure we have the capital to make the acquisition or how do we have the vehicle to secure the additional capital we want to bolster our balance sheet. Very much makes sense to me that having that New York Stock Exchange public currency as a mechanism to do secondaries or having that currency as a mechanism to do acquisitions is right for us. And so for us, the SPAC path is definitely the best path. Yeah, and, and kind of a corollary of that, you know, I, I'm interested in the ways that, you know, the two sides of the transaction have been able to align their interests with the, the SPAC uh, transaction structure as well, because, you know, despite, you know, you, uh, your, your two sides uh, having some familiarity with each other, you know, the deal does include an earnout, and quantum fintech has offered to put some promote shares to work and fundraising efforts. So just sort of what have you been able to hammer out there? And, and why do you think that's important as a part of the, the SPAC process and your process moving forward? This is a process we went through in the fall when when we went down the path, we being Atlas Clear, I'm on the Atlas Clear side right now, and quantum mm -hmm. fintech. Because of some conflicts that were there, we had to follow a very strict process by which to actually negotiate the deal. 
we obviously had to reach a certain threshold. Quantum at the time had over 200 million in trust. Let's just call it 200 million. So we had to have about a $160 million transaction. So um, I was negotiating on behalf of Atlas Clear with a, a quantum special committee that was put together. And during that process, we, they, were, they had contracted with a fairness opinion writer. And two primary objectives of the fairness opinion writer was one, was it a fair and equitable transaction for the current quantum shareholders? And two, did it reach the threshold enterprise value-wise in order to be able to be taken to a vote? So there's quite a bit of negotiation back and forth as far as one, being mindful of what would be receptive in the market. Um, we wanted to be mindful of that. Too many SPAC deals come out with these huge numbers and what happens to them afterwards. And we also had faith in our own management and that we could deliver. And so we structured a deal whereby we would be able to make the two acquisitions, but over 50% of the deal would actually be on earnouts on the back half with management putting it forward saying, if we perform, we actually will get that earnout. And through that metric, we were able to align everyone's interests, realize that we, we were all vested and we were able to move forward to the transaction. And we met the threshold necessary to take it to a vote. So it was really a really thoughtful process that we went through in the negotiation uh, to make sure that one, it would be something that would be acceptable to the market, but two, it also showed to the market that the that management believed in what we were doing and we were willing to put our compensation for the companies on the line in the form of the earnout. So it was a long, thoughtful process. Yeah, it is always uh, alignment of interest. You know, the contribution of the founder shares, those are contributed for the purpose of securing additional capital. Uh, as Craig mentioned, over 50% of the value of the transaction is purely earnout based. From the Atlas perspective, the technologies that we've been building that are world-class that are contributed, they're contributed purely for equity. So the entire alignment of interest is for the stock price to go higher. And, and I like that both as a shareholder and as a management member, because our alignment is exactly aligned with the shareholders. And so you briefly touched upon this earlier, but how much capital does Atlas Clear need in order to close on all of its near-term ambitions? And do you have some contingencies based on what you would do with a little more, perhaps a little less capital in the end? We do have contingencies. You know, we're we're expecting in our pro forma to add about 28 million in capital into Wilson Davis in total in the first year. That is what we think we need to hit the growth plans that we're putting forward in our projections. And then from the bank perspective, the bank is very small right now. Assuming the bank gets approved and we're able to marry the two companies together, the bank only has two, $2.7 million in, in capital. And the amount of deposit sweeps that we could take from Wilson Davis to the bank is far more than the bank can hold today. And so we're always looking at what is the total balance sheet and what is the amount. In an ideal situation, um, we can hit all of our revenue marks with the $40 million minimum that's in the transaction. But as soon as that is done, we are going to want to go out into the market and to get additional capital, largely to support the comfort level of our counterparties that want to see a higher balance sheet for trading on the security side, and then also to support the amount of deposit capture that we can get into the bank. We would like to see both institutions ultimately with over $100 million in balance sheet capital. When we get there, we think we'll be able to compete with almost anyone for almost any customer, and that's what we hope to do. We can get by on the transaction with less than 40 million, theoretically. We could get by with less than 28 million in additional capital to Wilson Davis, but to absorb the customers we believe we have available to us now, that 28 million into Wilson Davis is gonna be critical. Got it. And so in general, what do you think is the most exciting thing in this space in terms of new technology and new capabilities being made available? 
That's kind of a loaded question, right? <laughs> there is eventually going to be some clarity on crypto from the regulatory perspective. And for me, it's not so much crypto, it is the, the actual technology that is distributed ledger, right? When it's better embraced, it'll reduce not just settlement time to zero, but balance sheet risk behind that. The products that can be created off of that ultimately are, are very exciting. However, for us, we're talking about a very rudimentary platform in terms of what we want to do. We want to buy and sell stock. We want to lend money to people to buy and sell stock. We want to eventually buy and sell a currency. And we want to lend money to people to buy and sell currencies. And so we're very excited about the size of the business that is open to us and available to us. We're very excited about how good we know our technology is and how we can attract customers. Once all of that is integrated, once all the regulatory approvals are in place, then the next most exciting market is the distributed asset market. But we won't touch that until we have absolute clarity from a regulatory perspective. Just as a bank and as a brokerage firm, I don't think you can you can project when that'll come. So none of that is actually in our business model. We're excited about the relatively, it's complex, the relatively mundane providing custody services, providing trading services, and letting our technology do what it's always done, which is go fast. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. I hadn't uh, thought about, you know, this transaction in quite exactly that way, but just, you know, given all the the SPAC deals that we follow, and there are so many that, you know, whether they touched upon crypto or some of the other other things there that we've seen very long SEC review processes and 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 it's just some of them have had a hard time getting to close. And yet it's interesting what you've been able to, to set up here in terms of really getting all of the infrastructure necessary to take advantage of, of a variety of different opportunities once they sort of show up and once they are, as you say, you know, the, the regular, there's regulatory certainty and, and, and clarity on them. I, I guess I'm, I'm interested, is that sort of informed by what you've been seeing among other SPAC deals or just, yeah, this was sort of the, the strategy that you thought made the most sense from the very beginning? From our perspective with the, the limited capital that we, that we have and the customers that we have available to us, it makes the most sense for us to focus on the business that is available as opposed to looking over the horizon as to what might, might be the most exciting. The regulatory landscape is what it's always been. Every customer or every participant that comes into the regulatory environment is treated according to their own activities, right? It's not as if the SEC is anti-crypto. That, that's not the case. But it is relevant what kind of trading transaction you were doing. What was your thoughtfulness? What was your approach? How did you coordinate with the regulators in the first place to maybe have a safer landing spot than others? I think they look at every company different, every actor different, and the performance of each individual company is perhaps part of the, the factor in terms of how they're treated by the regulators more so than what is the asset class, if that makes sense. I think I think what we're trying to convey is that what we are creating is even though it is a complex structure, we've got all these moving parts that once mm -hmm. they actually come together, we've created a one stop platform for these small institutions that have been orphaned. And I do use that word all the time, but it but it but it is the reality. Bob McBay, who actually runs Wilson Davis, our partner on this project, you know, he gets calls weekly from smaller broker dealers that would look, like to onboard for clearing solutions. And quite frankly, they've been primarily focused on equities and in particular microcaps throughout their history. But everything is in place, stock, loan, margin, everything's in place to really expand the business rapidly post-close. And that's what we intend to do. And then layer in the technology. So, yeah, that's really, we, we had a question yesterday from someone, from an analyst and said, okay, you know, it's a really complex transaction. If you think about it, 
you know, how do you distill that down? And I said, I think the clarity will come once we have everything strung together because you won't have all these parts, right? Provided we get the regulatory approvals. And so we also want to stress that there was a lot of, you know, our first two years projections, we did a lot of work on them last fall to make them reasonable, to make them conservative, to where not only do things just with the existing business that Wilson Davis has that we can not only meet them, but probably far exceed them with some of the business we intend to bring on in the first two to three to four quarters. Mm-hmm.